Enjoy the dulcet tones of someone who loves history, humanity, and space a whole hell of a lot. I only censor myself around people I'm not comfortable with, and since I'm talking to myself, I am extremely comfortable, so I cannot guarantee no swears. I'm Hannah, born in Oregon in the very early 90s, and part of that Hannah-named hive mind, but I happily answer to HD, so brace for the obligatory joke. Coming to you in high def, HD fills her sweet spare time with space. week we went high into the sky and I talked about the things that humans have made to understand our worlds and other worlds by looking down on them from above. This week I'm going to talk about how we tried to figure out the world from ground level or sea level. Specifically I'm going to be talking about longitude. So longitude and latitude are mapping terms. They're human-made concepts, like the concept of time or direction, and in fact, they both rely on these concepts of time and direction. Latitude is easier to understand. By the time of the Greeks, it was known that the sun moved across the sky at a different angle, depending on the seasons, but also depending on where you were in the world. Claudius Ptolemy plotted lines of latitude and longitude by 150 CE, but he did subscribe to the common belief at the time that, quote, anyone living below the equator would melt into deformity from the horrible heat, which is silly. (laughs) But the equator was a known entity at that point in time. It's a latitude line, which I always remember because latitude is flatitude. It's horizontal. This prime latitude line, the equator, divides the planet into the northern hemisphere and the southern hemisphere. Longitude is vertical. The prime longitude line, which is called the prime meridian, divides Earth into the eastern and western hemispheres. Ancient astronomers and mapmakers knew what the equator was because the sun, moon, and planets all pass almost directly overhead when you're standing at the equator. The two other major lines of latitude, the tropics of Cancer and Capricorn, mark the sun's northern and southernmost boundaries in its apparent motion throughout the year. While the equator has astronomical guides to show us where it is, the prime meridian does not. Longitude lines run from the North Pole to the South, and there's nothing in the vault of heaven that orbits the Earth in that particular way. Historically, mapmakers placed the prime meridian anywhere they wanted. Ptolemy had it run through the Fortunate Islands, which we call the Canary and Madeira Islands. Other mapmakers moved the prime meridian to the Azores, off the coast of Portugal, to Rome, to Copenhagen, Jerusalem, St. Petersburg, Pisa, Paris, Philadelphia, anywhere they thought was significant. Can you make a guess where the prime meridian is in modern maps? The prime meridian runs through London. Specifically, it runs through an observatory that was designed by the architect Christopher Wren, where the first astronomer royal, John Flamsteed, lived and worked in the heart of London, in a district known as Greenwich. The Prime Meridian is the source of Greenwich Mean Time. That's the other thing you're establishing when you assert the Prime Meridian's location. You're determining the point from which all other clocks will be set. For every 15 degrees that you move away from the Prime Meridian, you are shifting over an hour. It's the math of breaking down a circle. The Earth is a sphere, and so its surface has 360 degrees. 
It takes 24 hours for it to rotate through a full day. 360 divided by 24 is 15. For every 15 degrees of longitude, you adjust your clock for an hour's difference. By establishing a prime meridian and these lines of longitude, you're establishing time zones. Now, that isn't totally true. Some countries don't use Greenwich as the source of their time zones, or they don't observe the hour difference that the 15-degree change in longitude creates. China and India use a single time zone for the whole country, even though their borders encompass way more than 15 degrees of longitude. And India actually uses a half-hour deviation from standard time zones. Several other countries use half or quarter derivations as well. You can look them all up. They have various reasons for doing this. Longitude was tricky to pin down, though. The 15 degrees of longitude that correspond to an hour's difference in time also vary in terms of distance. At the equator, where the Earth is widest, 15 degrees stretches 1,000 miles. But that mileage value decreases as you move north or south of the equator, and there's virtually no distance at all between longitude lines at the Earth's poles. Measuring longitude isn't instinctive, either. In almost all of the cases where astronomers tried to measure longitude, it required something that was impossible to find until pretty recently in human history, inaccuracy of time. And finding longitude was, in the 15th century, rapidly becoming essential to ship captains and their crews. Until the late 1400s, most ships, well, the ones that survived to come back to shore, they stayed within sight of land. There were incredible exceptions to this rule, like the Vikings' explorations and raids around Scandinavia, and an early 15th century Chinese expedition led by a royal eunuch. Someday, someone should ask me how I know about Zhang He off the top of my head, because the answer will most certainly surprise you. But apart from these notable, bold exceptions, ships needed to know where land was in order to survive. This was for multiple reasons, and a big reason was scurvy, or vitamin C deficiency. If you're icked out by teeth or tooth disease, I recommend not Googling scurvy. It's a rare condition these days because we have supplements and amazing satellite-powered navigational capabilities, but during the seafaring times of the 15th century, scurvy was a common way for sailors to die. The human body doesn't make vitamin C. It has to come from your diet, and it comes from fruits and vegetables. Those don't keep well on boats, so sailors just didn't get vitamin C if they were out of sight of land for a long time. Tissues start to break down, your gums will bleed and swell, your joints hurt, you can experience personality changes, and people died because it makes wounds heal slowly, and you can't fight off infection as well when you've been without vitamin C for a few months. You can bounce back with diet changes and vitamin C supplements these days, but in the 1500s, it was kind of a mystery why sailors got so sick when they were away from land for months on end. And when they realized why, coming up with a tactic to solve it took a while. It didn't stop anyone from planning these voyages, though, and so they needed ways to navigate quickly and safely when they were bouncing between distant islands and continents. As I said in Episode 7, when I talked about the tools used to navigate by the stars, there's a rich history of navigating across the sea with the help of celestial bodies. Arab navigators used knotted string and a piece of wood, then a device called a kamal, to sight Polaris, the North Star. A navigator would tie a knot in the string so that, by holding it in their teeth, they could sight the North Star along the top of the wooden piece, and the horizon along the bottom of the wooden piece. To return home, the navigator would sail north or south to bring Polaris to the altitude that they had observed in their home port. Then they would turn left or right and sail down the latitude, keeping Polaris at a constant angle. 
There was even a published record of which knot on the Kamal co- corresponded to Polaris's altitude for each port a ship would visit most often. This worked when you were staying in the same ocean, though, and they were using well-established sea routes. European nations were starting to explore the uncharted seas, and that was going to require something new. By 1490, Portuguese astronomers had invented the quadrant to use as a navigational tool. I talk about it more in episode 7, but a quadrant looks like a fourth of a piece of pie with a plumb line hanging from the point of the pie, down towards what would be the crust. Along the crust edge is a scale of degrees. A quadrant provides a quantitative measure of the altitude of Polaris, or the Sun, and it relates this number to a latitude. On a practical level, though, using a quadrant on a windy, moving, rocking deck of a ship was difficult. You had to keep it exactly vertical in the plane of the heavenly body, and it was impossible to keep the wind from blowing the plumb line out of alignment. And none of this relied on longitude. Maps were a mess because there was no longitudinal standard. The length of the Mediterranean on a 16th century map had an error of over 19 degrees, which translates into a sea that was 1,100 miles off in its size. As time went on and more devices were invented, navigators got to use the astrolabe and cross staffs, all with their own idiosyncrasies. I feel like new technology always has its ups and downs. Still, folks use these tools to navigate, and they had a plethora of decent ways to keep track of their latitude. Not longitude, though. Not yet. The German mathematician Johannes Werner proposed a means of measuring longitude in 1514 using the movement of the moon. He said that astronomers should map the positions of the stars and determine at what exact time the moon would brush against each star, and then publish the charts based on a zero-longitude reference. He suggested Berlin, or Nuremberg, naturally. (laughs) The problem with this method was that there weren't any accurate star maps in the 16th century. Astronomers also had no ability to predict the moon's movement, and sailors had no way to measure moon-to-star distances on the deck of a ship. Actually, a lot of these longitude measuring ideas fall apart because ships undergo a lot of motion, as you'll hear. So Werner's ideas didn't completely go away, but they weren't practical for ship navigators yet. In 1610, Galileo Galilei turned his telescope to Jupiter, and he discovered four of Jupiter's largest moons, the Galilean satellites. These moons are what today are named Io, Europa, Ganymede, and Callisto. Galileo observed the first eclipse of a satellite of Jupiter in 1612. These eclipses happen basically instantaneously, and if a ship's navigator could note the local time of such an eclipse and compare it with the local time at which it was predicted to happen at the European reference location, which in this case would serve as the prime meridian, the navigator could determine the longitude from the difference in times. Galileo just needed accurate tables of when these many, many eclipses would occur at a point that would then be designated the prime meridian. He put these charts together, and he tried to convince King Philip III of Spain that these would be useful. They were rejected. (laughs) The problem was that sailors couldn't see the moons often or easily enough for them to use them for navigation. Galileo tried really, really hard to make it work, though. He even invented a helmet thingy called a celetone to try and make it more practical to take measurements, which was basically welding a telescope to an eyepiece, and then you wore it on your head. It was such a bad idea. It didn't work at all. Even Galileo said that it was a bad idea. (laughs) Galileo's method was used starting around 1650, eight years after he died, but only on land. Map makers were able to set global dimensions with his technique, and other astronomers started improving the accuracy of the eclipse calculations. 
Giovanni Cassini published the best set of tables in 1668. Using his own table's measurements from Paris and comparing them with Tycho Brahe's Uranenborg calculations to confirm longitude and latitude at both Paris and Denmark, Cassini began an international effort to measure longitude. He called on observers in Poland and Germany to cooperate as well. The resulting map of France was finished in 1679 and showed that the west coast of France was too far west by an entire degree on existing maps. Similar adjustments had to be made to the Mediterranean coast. According to legend, when King Louis XIV saw the map, he said that he was losing more territory to his astronomers than to his enemies. The Danish astronomer Ole Romer was able to use Cassini's tables in 1676 to find a systematic error of about 10 minutes in the timing of the Jovian eclipses. The period of this error related to how close or far Jupiter was from Earth, and Romer correctly interpreted his findings to demonstrate that light does not travel instantaneously. He estimated that it took 11 minutes for light from the sun to reach Earth, which, while it's not the correct number, is a pretty incredible thing to realize in 1676. Getting back to longitude, though, the compass was a standard ship feature by the 17th century, and a method for determining longitude was proposed where you would measure the distance between magnetic north and true north. The Earth's magnetosphere is 11 degrees off from its rotational axis, which means there's 11 degrees of difference between magnetic north and true north. Navigators drew up charts that linked longitude and the observable distances between true and magnetic north. The advantage of this method is that it doesn't depend on knowing what time it was in two places at once. It also didn't depend on knowing when a predicted event was going to occur. It did have serious disadvantages, though. When you're sailing in the Mid-Atlantic Ocean, the distance between true and magnetic north is huge, but as you sail in the Pacific, the two norths almost overlap. Compass needles also varied, even from one voyage to the next. They were approximate devices, not exacting. The astronomer Edmund Halley also found that Earth's magnetic strength varied in different regions of the sea, which would fudge the numbers even more when you ne what you needed was precision. Meanwhile, in England, King Charles II wanted to find a longitude solution, and he wanted it to come from England. The astronomer John Flamsteed liked Werner's idea of the lunar distance method, and he suggested that the king fund an observatory to map the stars and provide a prediction of the moon's route for sailors to use. Flamsteed was named the Astronomer Royal, and he worked on this star catalog starting in 1676 and continuing until his death. It was published posthumously in 1725. Flamsteed liked the lunar distance method. Way back in the 1500s, though, there had been the idea of basing longitude determination on time. As I said earlier, every 15 degrees of longitude change equals one hour in time change from one location to another. Folks knew this. They had really shitty clocks, though. The Dutch astronomer Christian Huygens built the first working pendulum clock in 1656 and had published the treatise Orologium in 1658 on how these clocks could be used to establish longitude. He tested and sent his clocks out with sea captains in an effort to assist with navigation, but the rocking of the deck confused the pendulum. Even later adjustments proved fruitless. The pendulum issue went unresolved and clocks were still not accurate enough. You really need an accurate clock that could stand up to sea voyages, huge changes in temperature, big waves, all of that. It was also a lot of math to determine longitude based on a clock time, and no one had put in the effort to make tables out of the data because if the clocks weren't good enough, there was no point. 
But then two mathematicians, William Whiston and Humphrey Ditton, managed to rally enough seafaring folk to get a petition together demanding that England fund a solution to the longitude problem. They got in front of Parliament in 1714 with their demands. Parliament consulted with Sir Isaac Newton, who grossly undersold how difficult the current's methods of longitude determination were, even though he was friends with the practical and well-traveled Halley and knew that current longitude methods relied on a wing and a prayer most of the time. This all resulted in Parliament passing the Longitude Act of 1714, which Davis Sobel's book Longitude describes as an act that, quote, welcomed potential solutions from any field of science or art put forth by individuals or groups of any nationality and to reward success handsomely. The act offered a first prize of £20,000 for a practical, useful method that determined longitude to within half a degree. It offered £15,000 for a method accurate to within two-thirds of a degree and £10,000 for a method accurate to within one degree, which translated to 60 nautical miles or 68 geographical miles at the equator. They were willing to allow for that much error just to get a hope of determining longitude at sea. There were, predictably, based on how much money was being offered, a ton of submissions. Newton got frustrated by how few of them were astronomical in nature, though. He and Halley pulled what has to be one of the most college-prank, nonsense-sounding things I've learned about so far about astronomers— and they stole John Flamsteed's current star catalog data in 1712 and published their pirated edition to try and get some inspiration going on an astronomical level. Flamsteed found out, gathered up 300 of the 400 copies they'd gotten published and distributed, and he fucking burned them. (laughs) He was so pissed. Oh, and in 1722, Captain James Cook kicked scurvy to the curb by including sauerkraut in his ship's stores. Cabbage is high in vitamin C, and now it was safe for ships to take months-long voyages. Sauerkraut was later replaced with lemon juice and limes in the Royal Navy's provisions, but this is when the disease basically vanished from the ranks of the seafaring, which was awesome. It was the clockmaker John Harrison who would, sort of, claim the Latitude Act's prize. He was an innovator, a revolutionary when it came to clock design. He ultimately made five different clocks in his attempt to create a method for determining longitude at sea. He moved away from pendulum clocks to create a seesawing clock piece that withstood the motion of the waves, and he was always seeking ways to reduce friction in clocks, stop them from speeding up when they were first wound, reduce the effect of heating or cooling on a clock's measurement of time, and he was creating clocks that would not require lubrication. As much as one degree of temperature change could cause 10 seconds to be lost or gained on some clocks, so these were all incredible goals. In 1730, Harrison set out to the Board of Longitude with his proposal. The board had been established to judge applicants, but it had never actually convened in the 16 years since its establishment because the idea submitted had all been terrible, and it only took one or two people to send a letter that just said no. Harrison had the support of Edmund Halley, though, who knew that the board would hate any idea that wasn't astronomical in nature. So, Halley sent Harrison to a clockmaker who funded Harrison's research and innovations for the six years it took Harrison to build his ideal sea clock. Harrison's first clock, H1, was tested by the British Admiralty in 1736, and it did amazingly well. Instead of accepting the praise he was given, and potentially the award, though, Harrison went the route of the perfectionist. 
He asked for and received funds to further tinker with H1, and when the board tested the resulting H2 clock, Harrison insisted on tinkering still more, and he ended up working on H3 for almost 20 years. Meanwhile, in 1731, and entirely independently of each other, John Hadley of England and Thomas Godfrey of the United States both invented the early sextant. This initial version was called an octant because it was an eighth of a circle. An octant measures angles up to 90 degrees, but to observe lunar distances, there needed to be a greater angle range. John Bird created the sextant, which is one-sixth of a circle, in 1759, and that solved the problem pretty neatly. The sextant is basically a telescope with a mariner's quadrant attached to it and a little silvered mirror attached as well. What you do is you point the scope towards the celestial body you're measuring. You sight the horizon and then use the little mirror on a movable arm that changes the angle of the mirror to bring the image of the celestial body reflected off the mirror down to just touching the horizon you're seeing through the telescope. This will determine the object's azimuth and altitude to within one arc minute, or one sixtieth of a degree, which is one nautical mile of uncertainty. Then, back in the 18th century, you would use lunar distance tables to help determine where you were. Today, now that we know about it, we also have corrections for atmospheric refraction and for the instrument that you're using. You also use Greenwich Mean Time to plot your location on a map instead of using lunar distance tables. That's because the very obsessive, very determined John Harrison figured out how to make the clock method work. Star catalogs continued to be made, and astronomers kept up their work on the lunar distance measurements as the primary longitude measuring technique. The German mapmaker and astronomer Tobias Mayer tried for the longitude prize with his lunar tables, and a prize of 3,000 pounds was awarded to his widow after his early death in 1762 at age 39. But Harrison had presented his newest and greatest clocks to the board already. Why hadn't he gotten the prize money from the Longitude Act? Harrison's H3 was completed in 1757 and had resulted in the invention of a bimetallic strip that automatically compensated for temperature changes and ball bearings to smooth the movements of internal parts of the clock. It was also small enough that Harrison considered it a practical, useful tool for sea voyages. But H4 was completed in 1759, and it was perfect. A pocket watch that runs for 30 hours when it's wound. It does require lubrication because Harrison wasn't able to miniaturize anti-friction wheels and caged ball bearings, but it was subject to a lot of scrutiny because his method seemed too easy when compared to the lunar timetables. Harrison also had an enemy on the board of longitude, Reverend Neville Maskelyne, an astronomer who was devoted to the lunar distance method. In 1761, Maskelyne had taken Meyer's lunar tables around the world to test their viability, and he came back with nothing but praise for them. At the same time, H4 had been sent out late in 1761 to Jamaica, and had only lost five seconds after spending 81 days at sea. But the board was still suspicious. Harrison had to send it in for testing in the West Indies, and then surrender his designs and all of his clocks to the board for testing. Maskelyne became the fifth astronomer royal and used his position to push his own agenda in the longitude problem. A new longitude act under George III in 1765 had conditions and stipulations that all applied specifically to Harrison. It even mentioned him by name at some points. Harrison had to produce two replicas of H4 without any of his drawings and without H4 itself, while all of his plans and notes for the clock were published without his permission by Maskelyne. Admittedly, no one could understand his plans because he was a terrible and overly verbose writer, 
but Harrison had to buy a copy of this book just to make his replicas. He had to buy his own plans because they had taken them from him. Meanwhile, Maskelyne produced the Nautical Almanac and Astronomical Ephemeris in 1766, and he continued updating and publishing new editions until his death in 1811. This book contained lunar motion predictions and tables that sailors used all the way through 1907, and the almanac portion is actually still published today. He had to concede that there were major flaws in the lunar distance method, though. For about six days every month, the moon was too close to the sun for observation, so no lunar distance measurements could be made. And for two weeks out of every month, the moon was too far from the sun to gauge the distance between the two bodies, so the moon had to be plotted against the fixed stars, just as Werner had tried to do back in the early 1500s. Still, Maskelyne refused to concede that the clock method was superior to astronomical methods. His observations for the lunar tables are, incidentally, what established the Greenwich neighborhood of London as the source of the prime meridian of longitude. The Royal Observatory is actually the epicenter of the prime meridian and the source of Greenwich Mean Time, which today is measured with an atomic clock. Because sailors used Maskelyne's tables, which were measured from the Royal Observatory, this was the point from which they calculated all other distances and times. The International Meridian Conference in 1884 made Greenwich the official site, as established by 26 countries. France kept using Paris Mean Time until 1911, but GMT is the standard for most of the world now. It was the science nerd King George III, oh man, that rhymes, who helped get Harrison at least a little bit of the reward for discovering a longitude solution. Harrison appealed directly to him and allowed King George to test the one replica of H4 that he managed to make before his death in 1776. The H4 clock was eventually replicated by clockmaker Larkham Kendall, but it cost 500 pounds to make. Kendall thought it could be brought down to 200 pounds, but that still wasn't practical for a sea captain to buy. A good sextant and a set of lunar tables cost just 20 pounds. Watchmakers John Arnold and Thomas Earnshaw started mass-producing these seafaring clocks in earnest, and they brought the price down, so that by the 1780s it was 80 pounds for an Arnold-boxed chronometer. That's what these sea-specific clocks ended up being called, by the way, chronometers. And it was 65 pounds for an Earnshaw chronometer. It cost even less for a pocket chronometer, too. By the end of the Board of Longitude's reign, the board's primary function was to supervise the testing and distribution of chronometers to the Royal Navy ships. The board was disbanded in 1828, and the Navy's hydrographer, or their chief chartmaker, took over the board's chronometer inspection duties. So, today we learned about longitude. The hardest part of determining longitude was when you had to do it in a practical situation at sea. It was fine to use the eclipses of Jupiter's moons when you were on land, but it wasn't a practical method when you were on the deck of a ship. Lunar distance method was the norm for a long time, with the eventual help of a sextant to help determine the altitude of a celestial object. But James Harrison's pioneering clocks made measuring the derivation of time over distance a viable option. And in the midst of all of this, Greenwich, England became the source of Greenwich Mean Time. All the same stuff I talked about researching last episode still stands, since I, uh, I kind of went my own way here and I dug into a topic that was covered by the most convenient book that I could stuff in my purse. For the next episode, I could do the Voyager Golden Records, the Transit of Venus, Dark Matter, the history of the U.S. space program and how it relates to Russia's space program, the moon landings. I'm getting more and more into Edmund Halley, too, the more he pops up as a background character in these stories. 
he seems like a really cool, adventurous, fun-loving kind of astronomer. I don't know. <laughs> you can tell me what you think I should research by sending me a Tumblr ask or tweeting at me on Twitter at HD in the Void. And please send questions I can ask my physicist friend when I end up interviewing her. She studies dark matter and the Big Bang to help you narrow those questions down. I still see no ratings or reviews on iTunes for my show, so if you like it, maybe just say so on that platform. I would really love it if you did. I hope you heard something today that surprised you about astronomy in space. All of it scoots my skateboard. I can pinky promise the next episode will wander ever deeper into the cat's cradle tangle of astronomy and history and society to scoot your skateboard to. I'm moving at the end of the month, so I'll try to get something up on September 25th, which kind of makes up for the week that I had to skip. If I don't get it up then, um, I'm going to fight to get one up on October 2nd. You can check out sources, music credits, a vocab list, a timeline of all the people I talked about, the episode transcript, and a really cool resource that lets you drag continents all over a flattened map of Earth to compare their sizes at different latitudes. All of this is at, all one word, fill the void, dash, with, dash, space, dot tumblr, dot com. Hugs and kisses from the void. HD, signing off. (laughs) 